Life can fairly accurately be described as being like a roller coaster. A roller coaster has ups, it has downs, it has twists, it has turns, it can be fun and exhilarating, or it can be really scary. And a roller coaster will often leave you feeling a little bit sick. Sometimes as we look at life and all the twists and turns, it can leave us feeling a little bit sick. Now I'm saying all of this and I'm guessing that most of you can identify with what I'm talking about. You've experienced those ups and downs, those twists and turns. And I think the people that we're actually going to be studying today would also agree with some of these things that we're saying. Because as we read the story that we're going to look at today, we'll see some of these twists and turns and, and things that kind of up moments and down moments that they struggled with as they sought to glorify God. And what's interesting about that is these people lived about two and a half thousand years before us. And they lived in a land and a culture that's very far removed from our own land and culture. And yet we can identify with the things that they're saying. We're going to be looking specifically at Ezra chapter 4, and so we're going to be turning there in a moment. But before we do, I want to give you just a little bit of context for what we're looking at and make sure that we're on the same page. Ezra and Nehemiah are two books that belong together. And these books are inspirational to us because there's this true story, and we find that interesting, this historical account, but we also find it interesting because it's a true story of returning and rebuilding against the odds. We love that story of the underdog getting to kind of find victory in a hard moment. These people are stirred and, and called by God to go and to return and to rebuild the temple, the city and God's people so that God's people once again live for him and glorify him amongst all the nations of the world. Now, the fact of the matter is that following God as, as we're going to be looking at and as we've talked about these people even trying to do, is not easy. That's going to definitely come out in the story. But again, before we go there, a little bit of context from last week. We looked last week at chapters 1 through 3. And in that, we heard about Cyrus, the, the Persian king, the, the foreign king, who decided he was stirred by God to say, I want the temple to be rebuilt. Now, we know that behind the scenes, God is sovereignly and miraculous work, miraculously working because the people are sent out to go and to rebuild the temple. God's people are sent back to rebuild God's temple. And as they go and do that, they're supplied with all the things that they need. This is a really exciting moment in the story. This is one of those up moments in the story if we, again, compare it to a roller coaster. And they go and they go and they rebuild the altar and then they lay the foundation and there's this moment of celebration. There is some mourning that we talked about there last week as some reflect on all that's happened and the fact that the t old temple isn't there any longer. But there's this celebration, this loud noise that happens in this moment at the end of chapter 3. Now one thing that is interesting is to think about if you read from the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4 that we're going to read today, it's almost like this loud noise, this celebration, awakens the sleeping giant of opposition. Because what we're about to see in, in chapter 4 is that the roller coaster is tipping over the top and the next moment is a down, a hard moment in the history of all that happened in Ezra and Nehemiah. So with all that said, let's turn to Ezra chapter 4 in the Bible. We'd encourage you to read along with me. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 4 and we're going to be reading verse 1. And it goes like this. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esahadon. 
king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house for our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, you may be reading this being like, okay, what's going on here? This seems maybe a little harsh. Like, are you sure these people are adversaries? It's, they're identified in verse 1. These adversaries come to the people who were there in Judah, in Jerusalem. But as we read on, what we're going to see in the next verse, as we will read on, is that these people actually show their true colors. They're, all of a sudden, the mask is taken off and you're like, oh, they are adversaries. Let's read what happens next. Then the people of the land, that's the same people who came to them, discouraged the people of Judah, God's people, and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them uh, to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, I want you to jump down with me all the way to verse 24. In verse 24, it says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, as we read that, what we see is that all of a sudden their work gets frustrated and ultimately it stops. The key is really found in verse 4 where it says the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. Now, if we were to read that in the original language, what we'd see is that it's talking about how the people weakened their hands. That's how it can be translated. They weakened their hands so that they're not even able to do the work of rebuilding that God had called them to. Now, we can gather a little bit more information that is helpful here if we zoom out and get a bit of context around what we have. Um, If we go back again to chapter 1 and verse 1 of Ezra, what we know there is that it was in the year 539 BC that King Cyrus said, hey, go and rebuild the temple. And these adversaries start causing these issues and stirring up this trouble. And and that eventuates in the the temple work stopping altogether. And from what we can read between the lines and understand is that happened somewhere between 537 or 536 BC, so about two years after they've arrived. That's not a long time. So they they have this time of excitement and prosperity and rebuilding for about two years. And then the temple work stopped from, again, from what we can deduct, all the way from 536 BC, before Christ, all the way to 520 BC. And what that means is the next 16 years, 16 plus years, were years of where they were stopped and, and frustrated in the work that God had called them to. Now, some of you may have wondered, why did we jump from verse 5 all the way down to verse 24? Well, the reason we did that is because Ezra and Nehemiah are not actually written in chronological order. Now, that's a little bit surprising to us, but the author was being very specific in what he was doing. He was putting things together by theme. And what he's saying is in verse 1 through 5, here there was this theme of opposition. And then he shows us again in verse 6, And then verse 7 through 23, some other moments of opposition. There's some letters that are recorded there showing, hey, all throughout the 100 plus years of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah cover just over 100 years of Israel's history. And what it's showing us is that this this theme of opposition came up time and time again throughout that time, all throughout the years that they were attempting to rebuild and do what God had called them to do. 
We could go way further into the history and into the text. We could even look at the languages these were written in. This, this particular chapter, chapter 4, has both Hebrew in the original language and Aramaic. That's fascinating. But the point of this text, I really believe, is for us to know that things were not easy. That the work of glorifying God and, and, and doing this through rebuilding was strongly opposed. And what we need to hear, what we need to take from this, is that a life lived to glorify God is bound to face opposition. Now let's distinguish what we mean when we say opposition. Opposition is not exactly the same as hardship. It can be a type of hardship. But if you lose your job or, or if you're struggling to make ends meet or, or if someone you love rejects you or somebody you love passes away, those are not necessarily moments of opposition. And opposition is a moment where somebody or something is pushing against you. Think of two magnets opposing one another or, or people, uh, rugby players coming together in a scrum and, and opposing one another. We're not talking here when we talk about opposition either, just about general opposition. We're not talking about, uh, you know, it's hard when your neighbor opposes you because all the time he's, he's frustrated with you because you put out your wheelie bin too early every week. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about an opposition that comes when we seek to glorify God. That's what these people were doing. They were seeking to glorify God. Now there's this old list uh, that's, called, it's an old list of important truths that's called the Westminster Catechism. And in it, it's, it's trying to succinctly and clearly say, what is God's purpose for humans? And to do that, it asks this question. The very first question in this catechism is, what is the chief end of man? Now that may sound like old clunky English, but what it's essentially saying is, why do men, why do humans exist? Why do we have blood in our veins, breath in our lungs? Why do we exist? And it answers that question with this beautiful sentence. It says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now that sentence, that is rock solid, Bible-based truth. You see, my purpose and your purpose, whether we uh, acknowledge it or not, the reason that we exist is to glorify God, to make much of him, to point people towards him. To live a life that's lived and shout for shouts of his goodness, shouts of his praise that's, that's lived for his glory and, and is lived to enjoy him forever. But what the warning in this scripture, maybe in this text specifically, but all throughout the Bible, is that when we do that, when we seek to live for God's glory, that, that we, are, we should expect to face opposition. So some of you ask, maybe it's better not to try to live for God's glory if we're going to face opposition. Why should I try and live for God's glory if I'm going to face opposition? Now, if we have that line of thinking, that also is flawed. When we're not glorifying God, when we're not living for God's glory, we are doing the opposite. We are opposing Him. There is no middle ground in life. There is no middle ground when it comes to God's glory. You either live for God and for His glory, or you live against Him. And I realize that in our day and age, it's, it's not popular to talk so bluntly about things. But to live for anything, hear this, if we live for anything other than God's glory, it needs to be called for what it is. When we do that, it is sin. When you are living for yourself, 
when you're living for your own pleasure, or when you're claiming there is no God, I don't believe that God exists. That is living a life opposed to the God who made you. And it's sin. When we do that, that is sin. So what are we all called to do? We are called to, as the Catechism says, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But how? How do we actually do that? Well, all of us must do that from the same starting point, and that is the cross. Romans 6.23, I won't turn there right now, but I'll read it for you. Romans 6.23 in the New Testament says this, For the wages of sin is death. For our context today, we could say for the, the, the punishment that we deserve and that we get for, for living for our own glory and our own pleasure or denying God and His glory is death. And it goes on and says, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, your wrong living, my wrong living can be forgiven. And that forgiveness comes for free. It's not something that we earn our way out of. We don't start all of a sudden just living for God's glory. We need to start at the right place. And that is at and with Jesus. I've recently been reading, rereading through the old book, Pilgrim's Progress. This book is an allegory. That means it's a word picture, a beautiful word picture of life. And the main character in this story, he's weighed down by this burden, this sin that he carries around everywhere. It's this burden that's depicting depicting sin. And there's no way that he can remove it. He tries to get rid of it, but there's no way. Until finally he comes to the cross. And as he's looking at the cross, all of a sudden, easily, it drops from his shoulders. And it rolls down the hill into a pit, never to be seen again. And this is the point from which he then goes and lives the life of living for God and living for His glory. The rest of the story, the majority of the story, is this wonderful depiction of the struggles of the Christian life. We find this story, Pilgrim's Progress, encouraging because he goes through all these trials as he he follows on the straight and narrow path from the cross to the celestial city, which is heaven, represents heaven. As I think about all of this, I'm reminded of 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 12, I'll read it for you. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, you must do what you are created for, what you were designed for, and that is to live for God's glory. But what it says there is, when you do that, don't be surprised. Beloved Christian, follower of God, don't be surprised when you face a, tri- a trial. That, that's just normative. It's a, it's a part of life. And then it goes on and says, but something that we also should, should expect isn't just to face trials. It should be to have a reward at the end. Remember what it says there in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The opposition faced by the exiles in Ezra chapter 4 gave them feeble hands and it caused them to give up on the work that God had called them to of glorifying him through rebuilding. And what I want to stop and do now is just ask if you are a Christian, if you're somebody who's had that moment at the cross where your sins have been taken off your shoulders, 
Does this depict you? Have you lived for God's glory, but your hands have been weakened or, or maybe even the work of glorifying God has stopped altogether? We are all called to glorify God. How are we called to glorify God? Well, there's a general way that we're called to glorify God. All Christians are called to, to love him, to know him and to enjoy him and be satisfied in him. And part of that means that we are to know him and, and to, to be in his word, to be in prayer, to be in Christian community. That's all things that we should do to glorify God. And we should all seek to, to share the gospel wherever he puts us. We're called to be witnesses as his disciples, wherever he puts us, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our family circles. We are to declare the hope of Jesus. We are all called to serve and to be a part of a local congregation of the church. We're all called, if we're parents, to bring up our children hearing and seeing what it means to be a Christ follower. We shouldn't just be telling them what it means to be a Christ follower. We should be showing them. These are all ways that we're called to glorify God, general ways that we're called to glorify God. But what we also need to know is that there are specific callings given to different people. You see, these exiles were called to go and to rebuild. If you read the life of Paul in the New Testament, he was called to go and to plant churches. What are you called to? What, what things has God put on your heart? It could be as extreme as God calling you to leave your job and your security to go and to tell people across the other side of the world about Jesus. Or it could mean a calling to just go across the street. It could be a calling to go and to be a part of a new expression of the church, a new church plant in the city. I don't know what God's calling you to, but I want you, I want myself to consider afresh today. What is God, God's calling on our life? What is, how are we called to glorify God? This isn't something that we should consider just from time to time. This is something that we should daily consider because the most important thing we do in life is to live for God's glory. Don't let opposition weaken you or stop you. Now, one thing I want to say to encourage you is that Jesus understands the struggle. Jesus understands the opposition. You see, Jesus came and he lived a life among us and he sought to glorify God. But as he did that, he faced severe opposition. So when you face opposition, he understands, he identifies with that. And by his strength, by his power, by looking to him, you and I can face the oppositions that come our way and we can continue on the path living for him, walking on the straight and narrow. Coming back to Pilgrim's Progress, as you come to the end of the story, uh, the main character and his friend are walking up a hill to the gates of heaven or the celestial city as it's called in the book. And as they're going up there, they ask, there's an angelic being that's walking with them. And they ask, what will we do when we're in that city, in the holy city? And the response they get is just beautiful because it kind of, I guess, summates some of the struggle that we feel with. Oh man, a life lived for God's glory means opposition. That's hard. But this is the reply that comes. And I want you to hear some just some encouraging words in this. They say, in this moment, you will there receive the comfort comforts of all your toil and have joy for all your sorrow you will reap what you have sown even the fruit of all your prayers and tears and sufferings for the king along the way there may be tears there may be suffering 
along the way, along the straight and narrow. But I want you to hear today, hear this clearly, it is all worth it. The life lived for God's glory is 100% worth it. There is no other path that we can or should try to walk on except for the path of God's glory.